Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name is Greg Brady. We got into a lot on today's show. We started with U.S. politics. John Bolton's book is coming out. And Joe Walsh, a political commentator who supported Donald Trump famously back in 2016, wasn't sure he was the right candidate, but he knew he didn't want Hillary Clinton to be the president. That's his opinion. But he has done an about-face here, doing all he can to prevent his re-election. It's a stunningly energetic interview as well. It was a busy political day on Wednesday in Canada. Didn't win the UN Security Council seat bid. The leader of the NDP booted from the House. Christopher Waddell joins us. And tough, tough regulations as we reopen LTC homes to visitors. But are they tough enough? Or are they not tough enough? Marissa Lennox will join us, Chief Policy Officer for the CARP. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast right here. Enjoy. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. John Bolton, the book is coming out. But amazingly, it got into the hands of an awful lot of influential people in the media yesterday. Some key excerpts. Some the, the, There's a few stunning things and a few not surprising things. It's called The Room Where It Happened. Um, and of course, it's it's remarkable, right? That people leave Anthony Scaramucci, uh, sh- to some extent, Sean Spicer. You leave this sort of cultish thing that Trump has procured and you tell everything. But you don't tell everything when it matters to the media when you're employed, to Congress when you testify, to the Senate. OK, during the impeachment hearings, all this would have been this is to quote Adam Sandler from The Wedding Singer. All this is valuable information if you told me yesterday, well, a gentleman that's calling out Trump every chance he gets and for very good reason to save his country. So he believes his book called F Silence, calling Trump out for the cultish, moronic, authoritarian con man he is. And he's a former congressman as well. He is Joe Walsh. Joe, it's great to have you on here in Canada. Thanks very much for doing this. Hey, Greg, my friend, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Well, yesterday's revelations, there must have been, I mean, the the China stuff with the Muslim concentration camps are the only thing I looked at. And I said, this is a little bit of surprise. This is a little bit of, but we are so desensitized on this side of the border and on your side of the border to scandal, to deceit, to lies, to corruption, to crime, that we're, we're shrugging our shoulders, even as something as dr- dramatically explosive as that revelation. Yeah, look, Greg, I'm a Johnny One Note with this. Any discussion about John Bolton's book, I have to begin with this. Screw John Bolton. I mean it. Screw John Bolton. Mm -hmm. Think about it. This SOB knew that Donald Trump was unfit. He worked for Donald Trump. He knew that Donald Trump committed impeachable acts, and he didn't have the decency and the courage to testify under oath in January and February, as you said when it mattered. I'm not buying the book. I don't give a damn about the book. Look, the two big takeaways are, yeah, it's a reminder that Donald Trump is an unfit uh, jerk who shouldn't be president. But the second takeaway, Greg, is John Bolton is a coward. And I'm telling you what, he joins a long list of all of my former colleagues in Congress uh, who are cowards as well, because privately, They all know Trump is unfit, and publicly they don't say a damn thing. Joe Walsh is our guest on uh, 900 CHML. 
I, I know you've been on Bill Maher a lot. I've seen you there. I love your appearances yeah. there. His, mon- his, his epilogue, if you will, his new rules, he basically said, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for Republicans who are in office or in influential positions in the media or, or past politicians to say the magic word? Does anyone turn on Trump before November, uh, Joe, it, it, when they see basically forget the pandemic, forget the economy, forget everything else? He can't win. He won't have the numbers. No, I think they go down with him. I, I really do. I think the, I, Trump is the Titanic. I think Republicans go down with the ship. They're, they're tied to him. Um, and look, Greg, I believe personally, I think we're witnessing the, the breakup of the Republican Party. I don't think it will ever be the same. I left the party a couple months ago because mm-hmm. it's a damn cult. Um, but remember... Donald Trump enjoys 80 to 90 percent of the Republican voters out there support him. Uh, The party, the party's broken up and I don't see how it ever gets put back together. Joe Walsh's book is called F Silence. Want to mention that calling Trump out for the cultish, moronic, authoritarian con man. He is. He's a former Republican congressman. Do you look and say we'll never see another politician like him? Like if he if he doesn't win in November, that's great. Or another um, potential presidential candidate because we can have nefarious characters on both with both parties and they can get elected here and there. Yeah. That's fine. But will we will we move on from this? Will there be that sort of come to Jesus mea culpa moment that a lot of his supporters will have after this and go, well, whatever it is, whatever conservative causes I believe in, Joe. I can't go down that road again. It's it's the bender you go on maybe even within a marriage and then you slink home and go, well, I'm never doing that again. That felt terrible. So he's a completely horrible human being. I mean, think about it. So the most powerful country in the world made a completely horrible being their president. If we don't learn and understand why Donald Trump become president, then Greg will have another Donald Trump. Uh, Greg, our political system in America is broken. Both political parties kind of suck. The media has to reevaluate their role in all of this. A broken, only a really broken political system could elect a horrible human being. So if we don't do the real examination as to what put him in the White House, you'll see another Trump down the road. When did it start to turn for you? Okay, you are a you, you yeah. supported Donald Trump in his campaign. There were a lot of people that either wanted to sit this out, wanted not to vote for Hillary, wanted to vote third party, Jill Stein or whomever. When did it start to turn? Because I even said, okay, you know what? This has happened. Let's find a way to make the best of it. Maybe there will be some conciliatory elements to it. But right away, Muslim yeah. travel ban, right away, you know, right. huge, um, huge, you know, misuse of campaign funds. When did it turn right. for you in 2017 or 2018? <clears throat> so I voted for him in 2016. I voted for him because he wasn't Hillary. I didn't love him back then, and he actually blocked me on Twitter because I would criticize <laughs> some of the bad things I thought he did. But you know what, Greg? I'm guilty of something here, man. I didn't pay enough attention to Trump before he got elected. I just figured he was a goof, and maybe he'll appoint a couple good people. Maybe he'll play golf for four years, and he won't cause any trouble. That's on me. I should have paid more attention to him. It began to turn for me when I paid attention to him after he got elected. And Greg, first thing was when I realized that every time he opens his mouth, he tells a lie. Oh, my God. We've never had that before. He lies as he breathes. The final straw for me was Helsinki in the summer of 2018 when he stood in front of the world 
and said, I believe Putin and not my own people. That was the greatest act of disloyalty I've ever seen in an American president. From that point forward, I was doing everything I can to make sure he wouldn't get reelected. Joe Walsh is our guest, former congressman, radio podcast host. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Walsh Freedom. Um, I, I want to ask you whether you see any concept of an electoral map that does concern you in November, no matter how the campaign goes. I, I know this looked in the bag, but I hear two things. Yeah. I used to live in Michigan for nine years, and I started yep. hearing from Michigan friends, this ain't a sure thing. Ohio usually swings. Michigan hasn't swung in a long time uh, Republican. You got to go back to Reagan for it to go to go Republican. And then I, I see LeBron James in, in uh, you know, stumping for Hillary, Bon Jovi stumping for Hillary. And I'm like, they know they're in trouble in the last few days before the election. Is there anything you'll see in late October, early November that'll scare the bejesus out of you? Yeah, what we know now, uh, Greg, is that Biden is winning by a lot nationally. But that, as you said, that doesn't mean squat. Mm-hmm. In the in the battleground states, Biden is leading, but it's very close. If Trump can keep it very close in the battleground states, then he can do his hateful bigotry kind of a stuff to get his. Let's be real, his primarily white working class people out in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. And, and he can make this thing close. Look, I, I'm, I'm a Tea Party conservative, Greg. You know where I am politically. Mm-hmm. I'm doing everything I can to get Joe Biden elected, not because I love Joe Biden, but because I believe Trump is an existential threat. But this thing is this thing could really be close because Trump is close in the battleground states. Yeah, I mean, cons- people who lean conservatively like you, like S.E. Cup, like um, Max yeah. Boot, I- I'm just great admirers of because Colin Coward's a uh, very, very good sports radio host. And he often says yeah. Yeah. what people are looking for now is is affirmation, not information. They want to be told that what they believe is right. And a guy like you and honestly, a guy like me, I've got some liberal principles. I've got some conservative. Pr- I want to I want to yeah. put it in front of me and I'll decide. But is the media was how culpable was the media were the TV networks in 16? How culpable are they now? There's some people that say, shut off, forget Fox News, but shut off these coronavirus press conferences. Stop going to him every time he's at a rally and threatening journalists or or making, you know, derogatory comments about women. How 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 culpable were even CNN and MSNBC in giving him the airtime? Well, yeah, they're all right there with him. And and Greg, I come from the conservative media world. Let me just say this. Screw Sean Hannity. Screw Rush Limbaugh. These people, look, I I come from that world. You are paid to lie to your audience. You're paid to wash Donald Trump's feet every single day. Uh, the, the, The company, the radio company that syndicated me, Greg, they would bust my chops every week to say that Donald Trump walked on water. And I couldn't do it. So I was losing my radio show. I was losing markets because to succeed right now, you've again, you've got to say Trump's the greatest thing in the world. Um, that's an absolute shame. They deserve. I mean, think about this, Greg. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump lied to the American people about the virus. But Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, all of them echoed Trump's lies. They're every bit as much to blame as Trump is. Joe, there's some people that think I can. I'll sign up. I can get through the the pandemic. I can get to November. Just tell me none of his kids will ever run for office. But you probably can't make that guarantee, can you? We're all scared of those kids. I don't. Here's the deal. I know a lot of people say that. 
I don't think it's going to happen. Junior, Don Jr. is a freaking idiot. <laughs> and he doesn't have, like, like Greg, Trump is a great, brilliant con man. Uh, that, that ain't Junior. And Ivanka is a cold, I mean, it, no. So I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But seriously, Trumpism mm. isn't going to go away, which is why it's got to be a landslide defeat in November. If it's a close election yeah. and he only loses by a little bit, Trump and Trumpism is going to be with us for a long time. Maybe they all believe Finland's part of Russia. Maybe we've got, <laughs> maybe we've got, uh, all, like it's not, it's just, there's something that surprises me every single day. You can follow him on Twitter at Walsh Freedom. Uh, F Silence <laughs> is the book. Find it there. I love this. I hope we can do it again before November. I'm a huge fan. Thank you for doing this. Hey, I'm a big fan of yours. You ask, I'll be here. Thanks, my friend. You got it. Joe Walsh uh, joining us. Find his book on uh, Amazon.ca. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, he got kicked out of the House of Commons yesterday for calling a Bloc Québécois MP racist. He wouldn't apologize, said I meant, I said it, I meant it. We all get those chances, right? <laughs> okay. Relationships, parenting. We're like, do you want to tell me that again? Or do you want to take that back and put it a different way? And he did no such thing. Called uh, Alantarian a racist and refused to withdraw the remarks. Now that's, again, tricky ball game here with the block. Okay? It, it, it is an offense to some sensibilities in Canada um, what the block stands for. Like, they don't want the Canada that you want. Like, we're talking about, we're not the U.S. The U.S. is pretty damn polarized. We just had an explosive interview with Joe Walsh. Loved every second of it. Um, who described it. And and again, he's considered a turncoat to the Republican Party. He's good with that. But think about if there was a party in the U.S. whose main goal was to stifle the English language, to tear up the Canada that we currently know. And there have been two, in my lifetime, significant referendum votes. One at one of the time with Rennie Levesque in the very early 80s, that, and, and the one in 95, had a lot of people on edge. This is the Jacques Parizeau, you know, Lucien Bouchard era, if you will, that had a lot of people concerned. I, I remember doing that uh, that debate in college, like being like on the college radio station, we did coverage of it. Okay, I'm sure I'd hate to hear it now. But there were a lot of people waking up pretty concerned about how Quebec was going to vote. And vote both votes were close. Both votes were close. And don't forget as well, real quick, uh, Yves-Francois Blanchet last year during the election found a number of racist social media posts by his candidates. Not one, not two, number of Islamophobic posts, number of racist posts. And these weren't, oh, it might be racist. These were blatant. And he had to apologize to the whole, and and, and I think this is significant, he apologized to the whole population of Quebec. But not to me, and not to you, and not to people west of here, and not to people east of Quebec. I think a lot of people end up finding that significant. We're very pleased to welcome in our next guest, a fantastic journalist for so long, and I watched him for a long, long time. Uh, of course, 10 years at CBC News. He was, of course, parliamentary bureau chief in Ottawa for a good chunk of time and produced The National during what I call the Mansbridge era, uh, now with School of Journalism at uh, Carleton, where I didn't apply, but I knew how hard it was to get in. Uh, Professor Christopher Waddell joins us now on uh, the Bill Kelly Show. Christopher, it's Greg Brady. Thank you very much for making the time. Thanks very much, Greg. 
Well, uh, let's start there with uh, with with Jugmeet Singh. That is uh, th- that's an ironclad rule, and he probably knew the punishment that was coming. That's not the R word. Is not something you can call someone in the House of Commons. Were you surprised by the exchange? Um, a little bit, but um, and I don't for a moment doubt either the sincerity of Mr. Singh or the seriousness of the issue with the RCMP and the problems that we've all seen with how the RCMP have treated a variety of people across the country, whether it's Indigenous people or, or, or Black or racialized people. But I think you also have to remember that there's politics in everything that happens in the House of Commons. And, and I'd say two issues are important in looking at, at this one. Um, one of which, of course, is the one we've heard a little bit about over the last little while, is that in the last three months, the opposition parties have had a great deal of difficulty attracting any attention from the media or from the public. They're not in power. They're not actually um, making the decisions about what's being done on, on COVID-19 to to assist people. Uh, the House of Commons has met, but it's only met very rarely. The opposition parties have wanted to have the House meet more often. Uh, the Liberals aren't as keen on that. So, so um, it, it's important for the opposition parties to try to do things that attract some attention to them. Uh, and and I would say that doing this the way Mr. Singh did it, um, as I said, I don't mm-hmm. doubt the seriousness of his motion, but but um, refusing to withdraw it, knowing what, as you say, what he would do, he was pretty sure he would attract some attention to the NDP, and the NDP hasn't had much attention lately. Yeah, the other I, issue that I think that is important in this is, okay. is if you go back to the 2019 election, the NDP did very poorly in that election. The number of seats they had went from 40, 44 down to about 24, almost cut in half. Many of those seats they lost were in Quebec. They went down to one member in Quebec, and they lost many of those seats to the Bloc Québécois in Quebec. So it also it works to the political advantage of Mr. of Mr. Singh to actually be um, having a confrontation with the, with the Bloc at this point, if he believes, as I'm sure the NDP does, mm-hmm. that they can win some of those seats back. Because remember, we have a minority government, and there likely will be an election sometime before ni- uh, 2023. Well, I was going to say, it, it does feel, you nailed everything from the fall. Uh, not great results, uh, except in, in pockets of, of the country. Not what they were hoping for. The party's in some money trouble. But, but Christopher, it feels like, you know, Jagmeet Singh feels a little bit empowered. He knows the importance that the New Democrats hold as a party uh, with a minority government. They, you know, they were mm-hmm. able to have a great sphere of influence on uh, the Trudeau government in this past week, uh, passing that confidence test. So there's an element of, of empowerment the NDP feels that, that, you know, maybe has come full circle from where the fall was, where they had better hopes for the election. And they also held out before they passed that, uh, before they passed that um, confidence motion, held out for an extension of the the, um, the benefits to people who've been laid off for another couple of months, and they were able to get that from the government. So, so clearly they recognize they have a degree of influence. Um, they recognize that they need more visibility, and they recognize um, they're also, as I said, honestly concerned, as many people, uh, as most as people should be, about the actions of the RCMP and some of the things we've seen across the country in the last little while. Whether it's in, whether it involves um, how they treat people that they uh, that they stop or that they arrest, or whether it involves how they pursue criminals in the case of New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, I mean, and the the um, the mm-hmm. multiple murders there. There's lots of good questions to ask about what the RCMP is doing. So all that is sincere, but it also creates a political opportunity for the NDP to make to take advantage of. And Mr. Singh, I think, is doing some of that too. All right, I definitely want uh, time to talk about the uh, the CPC race. This is going to be a quick mm-hmm. one, obviously, with mail-in ballots. But let me get uh, l- let me get your thoughts on not winning the uh, you know the high. Pro- it was a pretty high-profile bid uh, Canada put together. 
There was a lot of criticism of Justin Trudeau in February for the UN Security Council seat. He was in Africa. He was, you know, looking for votes at, at the time when the blockades were starting to happen in our country pre-pandemic. And a lot of people said, you shouldn't be there. You should be here. What's your observation of not winning? What does it say about us in terms of our foreign policy and, and our how much we matter on the world stage? Well, and it's disappointing for the government. They put a lot of effort into it, as you note, and they had a lot of their, their um, officials around the world actively campaigning for Canada. The prime minister did an awful lot um, to try to uh, talk to an awful lot of leaders around the world. But in the end, they're up against two strong competitors, Ireland and, and uh, Norway. Um, Canada hasn't been very active on a lot of things um, globally in the last little while. It is disappointing for Canada because it hasn't been on the Security Council now for 20 years. It lost a vote again about a decade ago uh, and didn't get on then. Um, in terms of, it means a lot internationally. It means a lot to people who are concerned about foreign affairs. But in the current environment, I suspect for the general public of most Canadians, it doesn't make much difference and it doesn't really have, I, I can't see that it has any sort of political impact on the, on the Liberal government one way or the other. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it necessarily connects with the average uh, Canadian. We learn about the UN in school. There's some people that take a, uh, you know, a, a real interest in it. That said, it's a weird, it's a weird time, isn't it? With the world essentially, how would I put it, on on fire? We've got, you know, we got bigger problems. We've got bigger issues, and and there's a lot that the UN's going to do in terms of peacekeeping, in terms of famine relief, in terms of you know, um, global warming, and we're all going. Yeah, please do those things, but. I, you know, I can't take my eye off the ball here, which is keeping my family healthy, helping the economy get back on track, making sure I've got a paycheck next month, those kind of things. And and, and, and truthfully, if you look at some of the things that, that Canada has done and has led internationally on, there haven't been very many in the last 20 years. And and that's part of the problem as well. And and so the challenge becomes, do they want to try to do things that may give them opportunity to get elected uh, at a future date? We'll have to see. All right, CPC leadership. Um, they had a French debate last night. There will be clearly more eyeballs on the English debate tonight. All of them struggled with the language. I mentioned that off the off the top of the show. Um, but is this, in essence, in essence, in in your mind, simply put, a a two person race? And is uh, is is Mr. McKay slightly ahead of Mr. O'Toole in that two person race? Um, we'll have to see on that. Um, but it's more than a two person race because it's possible that. Um, I don't think either of the other candidates, Derek Cohen or Leslie Lewis, is likely to win, but they may turn out to be significant in that the way the, uh, the, way the campaign is run and the way the voting is done, people uh, cast preferential ballots. So you, cast, you, you indicate your choice, first, second, third, and fourth. Then you mail your ballot in. And if one of the candidates doesn't get 50% among first choices, then they rank all the first choices, and the person who is fourth drops off the list, and they take that fourth person's votes for second place, and they allocate them to these three other candidates. And and so it becomes, um, while it may be Mr. O'Toole against Mr. Um, against Mr. McKay, mm-hmm. they also need to be conscious of the fact they may need votes from some of the uh, supporters of Mr. Sloan or Ms. Lewis. And where that becomes interesting is that Ms. Sloan and Ms. Mr., uh, um, Ms. Lewis, I mean, and Mr. Sloan, both represent what you would describe as the social conservative side of the Conservative Party. Um, so both Mr. McKay and, and a significant amount of the membership of the Conservative Party is either social conservative or evangelical Christian. So Mr. McKay and Mr. Um, and Mr. O'Toole have to appeal to those people when mm-hmm. they're trying to get votes for the leadership. And we'll, we may see some of that tonight. But the difficulty they face in doing that is that the last election and pretty much all evidence suggests 
that the social conservative element of society is present, but it's not enough to win an election. And, and, uh, and so the, whoever wins has to appeal to a broader group than just social conservatives. But in order to win, uh, has to appeal to a broader group than social conservatives to win in a general election, but they have to make a significant appeal to social conservatives to win the leadership. And the things you say now can get held against you later on if you're actually the leader and you're running in a general election. So, so mm-hmm. the two leading candidates have a pretty firm, a pretty sort of tight line to have to walk on those, and we'll see how they actually do, them, do that tonight. Yeah, I'm fascinated by by that because it, it, some are suggesting it's it's a dangerous game to play the social conservative card. That Andrew Shear played it too much. That people didn't want to worry that uh, you know abortion would get put on the table. That gay marriage would get put on the table. It, I think our country's past that. I think those wars have been won. But and and guns is a big issue, obviously, uh, among a mm-hmm. couple of the candidates. But there's a there's also a you know a mid base uh, you know a a people that are that lean liberal but are so frustrated maybe with some things about the Trudeau government but they're not going they weren't going to shear in the fall because they're concerned about those social issues and, and the, the challenge that conservatives face more broadly I think is that that um, they've attended in the last election campaign they tried to appeal to their core supporters but their core supporters aren't enough to win an election and they also yeah. tend to be more of a rural party than an urban party. Uh, they'd like to be a suburban party, but um, but they didn't do that well in suburban areas in the last election, perhaps because of the social conservative um, issues you mentioned. Um, there's certainly, and they also, um, under Mr. Scheer, lost a lot of the, um, the support they had in immigrant and new Canadian communities that had been built up under Mr. Harger. Now, some of that was social conservative as well, because those communities are also contain social conservatives too. But um, but the challenge they face at the moment is is they need to broaden the base of support for their party, but the base of support they need to broaden for their party is broader than the ideology of the core members of the party. And first, you've got to get elected by the core members before you can actually start to think about trying to attract people who aren't members at the moment. And how you do all that and walk that tightrope is is um, is uh, is not easy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a risky game that they'll be playing, and and we may not be if the NDP still falls in line, we're not going to see an election still for another four years or so, no matter what some of the predictions well, were. I, I don't think anybody want. I, first of all, I don't think anybody wants one for a while um, because of the no- thing you noted before in terms of some of the parties, the NDP being in financial yes. problems. And the other thing is, is I'm not sure how many people actually want to go out and work in an election at the moment, and parties need workers to go out to do the groundwork to actually yeah. run an election campaign, and that. That doesn't feel to me like anything that that's anybody wants to do for the reason you noted is just people have other concerns about closer to home and family and everything else. Oh, of course yeah. not. We've seen some famous uh, conventions on on Saturdays, um, you know, Cretchen and, and uh, Paul Martin. We've seen, you know, yeah. Clark and Mulroney. We've seen a lot of, uh, yeah, we've seen a lot of those. And they can't even have a proper convention, obviously, the CPCs can't. Thank you so much. We're out of time, but I loved having you on. Thank you for your perspective on this. No problem. Thanks very much, Greg. You got it. Uh, Chris Waddell joins us uh, from Carleton University, of course, Globe and Mail, CBC for so many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are curious as to where it goes at this point for Ontario's long-term care homes, change is coming today. New rules that are going to help relatives visit residents. But nothing, right? Nothing's unanimous right now. Nothing is unanimous. Some people think it's still too restrictive. Some people think it's not enough. Some people are concerned at all that some of these doors are being reopened. Again, we are all in the midst of this and the tragedy of what's transpired at some of these homes. Uh, I know, you know, the, the 
Orchard Villa and Pickering is the is the dominant one that people talk about. Fifty plus deaths there. They are going to like linger doesn't even quite cover it with how we're going to feel and the aftershock of this. Not just for the relatives, not just for the workers, but how we feel. I, I said it yesterday on the show. This is all of us eventually. We, we're not going to get to choose not to get old. We're not going to get to choose not to have our circumstances change as we age, some sooner than others. Uh, so this is really, really important to see where we go forward from this point on. Very pleased to welcome in uh, Chief Policy Officer for CARP. That is Marissa Lennox. Marissa, it's Greg Brady. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me on. Well, tell me about the, uh, the the new restrictions. What will people find that is universally different from January or February when things, uh, you know, we were just humming along pre-pandemic? There are going to be some very strict conditions for visits. Well, in January and February, uh, you know, I don't know that any restrictions really existed then. Um, and it looks as though, you know, the province's, is, is exercising an abundance of caution here because they are beginning to lift some of the restrictions. Remember, for the last three months, of course, no one was allowed in or out of these homes. Um, and so some of the guidelines, I would say, you know, they feel a little heavy-handed, Greg. It's, mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's not really a balanced approach. In some ways, it's it's a pendulum swing from where we were. So, for example, visitors need to prove a negative result on a COVID-19 test within a two-week span of each visit. Um, and so that means that for every test someone takes, they'll get two visits. And then they have to do that test again. And that presents its own challenges. And I would even question the merit of that restriction because, you know, someone could test negative and then be positive the next day. Sure. Um, and so, and on top of that, of course, there are a number of questions about where people even get these tests. It's not like there's an abundance of COVID testing drive throughs um, Some of the other restrictions uh, include visits being limited to 45 minutes only one guest as, at a time. Uh, this one is particularly, you know, one we've heard a lot about because, remember, um, if you're only allowing in one guest at a time, well, what if someone's husband, wife, brother, or sister live alone and want to visit their loved one in a long-term care facility, but they need support getting from point A to point B and then maneuvering once there? What if they have a caregiver themselves? Right. They need support. So those are some of the, I think, the questions that people are starting are starting to ask. And I know n- n- no hugging, there won't be touching, and that's going to be that's going to be a tough one. There's a lot of I, I know even my in-laws right now. Uh, it's you go visit them from a distance, you take them something, you check in on them, and they're they're coming towards you, and you got to tell them. Uh, it's it's not a it's not even a forgetful thing. It's just so instinctive. These people were with you your whole life. They may have had you, may have raised you. And it's hard. It, the no touching is hard for an awful lot of people. That'll be heartbreaking for a lot of families, for I imagine the majority, if not all families, to not wrap your arms around your loved one who you were so concerned about over the course of the last few months. The first time you get an opportunity to see them and you won't and you aren't able to touch them. You know, it, it, I appreciate, you know, what the government's doing in terms of mandating that people wear gloves that they wear masks. Um, I appreciate the active screening that they'll be conducting when people come into these homes. Um, and the physical distancing restriction is one that, that is going to be difficult to swallow for a lot of families because they've just been limited. We need to remember, mm-hmm. you know, the, 
family caregivers are not just a nice to have. They're a necessity for people and and they're a necessity in playing a central role in the life of that resident and also the healthcare system. And they used to play a very hands-on role. Um, and so they're being restricted from doing that when we've um, you know, allowed in the military, for example, to fulfill some of those responsibilities. Yeah. Uh, Marissa Lennox is the chief policy officer for uh, CARP, which is the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Do you feel like post-pandemic, Marissa, the new normal might be? Because it, it now boggles my mind, and, and this might be a, what were we thinking thing when we backtrack and rewind the tape, that you could just walk into an LTC. Um, I, I think the new normal might be you have to make an appointment. You must be screened medically. Like it, it, it's it's tricky now to look back three or four years ago and think, why was anybody allowed to walk in? Of course, some some people want to frequently visit, and some of the residents want frequent visits. But making make an appointment. You can't walk into a dentist or doctor without calling first. You know, I hope we don't have to go there though. Because remember, th- these are not institutions where people are, are meant to be warehoused. These are their homes. This is where people live. And so to put a restriction on family coming to visit and having to schedule an appointment, I, I understand that may be um, something that we'll have to maintain, at least in the near future, and maybe even around uh, you know, the height of flu season, perhaps. But I hope that going forward, that isn't that isn't the new normal. I guess the, I guess the concept is I'll elaborate on it. The concept is uh, I trust myself. You would trust yours. It's a little bit like how we drive more defensively, maybe at one a.m. on a sure. Saturday morning because we think I'm okay. But it's not eleven a.m. on a Thursday. I'm I'm aware that some people may have had you know something to drink and and they're out and they're happy and they're not paying attention. So I think with these homes, I think. You know, I might yeah. not go visit my father or uncle in there when I have the flu, uh, a severe flu, mm-hmm. but I can't trust everyone else not to. And, you know, it, this is where we're at. One little outbreak, even a flu, is is going to be problematic going forward. We're all going to be a lot more germ conscious, flu conscious going forward. No, and and I appreciate that, and 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 you're right, and I think that going forward too, I mean, there will be just sort of, sort of an abundance of caution that will have to be taken when going into the, these facilities because we've now shown how vulnerable they are for the spread of disease and and for virus, and how vulnerable mm-hmm. the people living in these facilities are, and so I think that that's something going forward that'll have to be. Um, I don't know, I, I, you know, something that the province will have to address. And I think families, you know, I spoke to someone the other day who was going to see her mother for the first time and she was elated, but she was equally as fearful. Um, yeah. And she herself was prepared to take an abundance of caution because she was worried about, uh, not only about the health of her mother who was living in that home, but the individuals around her mother that are also living in that home. And I think that that's something that will be top of mind for people when they go into these facilities going forward, whereas before perhaps we took for granted. I'm so glad you said that because there's this this whole pull-push uh, risk-reward thing that we're all fighting. My my two uh, sisters, all our families, there's like 12 of us, we'll, we'll rent a cottage for a week in Imperwash. And my parents near, near there, they'll come up every day. 80% of the time they're outside. But I know that that it'll be different this summer. I don't want to not see them at all, but I'm not sure we should see them every day, even if it's outside for seven, eight hours a day. I, I that's that's a risk I I don't want to put them through. It's a risk reward, but again, it's I think it's a it's a it's the the need to to find that balance. I think is critically important mm-hmm. because 
Um, obviously, we know the pain and the stress it causes on an individual to be totally isolated and not see their families. At the other, on the other hand, um, I think we all just, uh, particularly as we're heading into a second wave that many healthcare providers are, are you know, talk about is here already. Um, we're heading into yeah. that second wave with the height of flu season, and we all just need to continue to be cautious um, and to exercise, you know, appropriate and 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 safe. Yeah. Uh, physical distancing measures as well as health and health and safety measures. So true. Uh, Marissa, really enjoyed our conversation and thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for making the time for our listeners today. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Got it. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer for the Canadian Association of Retired People. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.